First, naturally, we turn to royalty, a prime candidate to join our top 100 scientists. Jessie Christensen is at Caltech in Pasadena. She gained her astronomical qualifications in Griffith in Brisbane, at the ANU, and then the University of New South Wales. She's now with NASA in California. May I comment about your clothing? Exoplanet Queen, it says, <laughs> boldly. It does, it does. How do you justify that? I am the woman who has found the most planets in the world, having found 66. I don't compete with some of the guys, but I'm the most successful woman planet hunter in the world. And how many numbers do the guys actually claim? <laughs> so my colleague Tim Morton has found 1,275, and another colleague, Jason Rowe, has found over 700. When I last saw you a few years ago, did you have any dream that it would be numbers on that scale? I really didn't. Uh, we had expectations, but everything had to work out right. With all of our missions and all of our projects and all of our data, we had to find thousands of planets, and we did. And we think we're going to find tens of thousands more. By what means? Many means? Yes, there's a few different ways of finding planets that are going to boom in the next five years. So there's a European mission called Gaia, which is using astrometry, which is measuring the position of the star really precisely. It's expected to find up to 70,000 planets. And then the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope that NASA is launching is going to use two different methods. One is called microlensing, basically magic that Einstein laid down the equations for. And it's supposed to find thousands of planets with microlensing. And then the big one with Roman is the transiting method. So that's the method where the planet goes in front of the star and blocks some of the light. When you measure the light, you see it a dimming. And it's going to find 100,000 transiting planets. And you're going to get that information pouring at you on your desk so that you can analyse what the planets are like. Yes, that's the advantage of analysing space data. I just get to sit at my desk and it all comes to my laptop, beautifully reduced. And you never go up and look at the telescope and see the stars? Very occasionally, a few nights a semester, I get to go to a nearby observatory called Palomar Observatory, which is a wonderful old telescope, the big eye on the sky, it was called. It was the biggest optical telescope in the world 100 years ago. And... It's really wonderful to get to go. I, I do miss going more, but I get to go sometimes. What we get from the NASA spacecraft, the data that I analyse are candidates. We see little wiggles and they might be planets, but they might be something else. There's a bunch of other things they could be. So I do things like go to Palomar Observatory or remotely use the Keck telescopes in Hawaii or the Gemini telescopes in Chile to look much closer and find out what it actually is that's orbiting this star and creating this little wobble that we see. That's the hard work. You find thousands and thousands of candidates and then you have to spend hours and hours turning each one into either a confirmed planet or a false positive. And with all of that number, are they all characteristically different from each other? Or can you say, that's another one of them, that's another one of them, and there are only about five or six types? <laughs> there was this really interesting cultural shift in the field a few years ago as we got into thousands of planets where every individual planet isn't necessarily exciting anymore. If you have a paper that comes out with 60 planets in it, which my most recent paper did, I can't tell you about each one individually. I don't know about the 13th planet in the paper or the 27th planet. You just start to analyse them in bulk. So it used to be the case that everybody knew every exoplanet. You'd be like, Hat P7, of course, that's the one with the variable atmosphere. And now you're like, Kepler 612, uh, was that one of the rocky ones? Like, we've totally lost the ability to know all the planets, which is a shift. But in terms of the classes of planets, 
We do see broad classes. So there are hot Jupiters. Um, ah, with tails. Yes, yes. Most recently, one of them came out as having a tail. There's a few now, we think, that have these big tails. So there's hot Jupiters, which are gas giants very close to the star. There are Neptunes and sub-Neptunes, ice giants that are just a bit smaller than Neptune and Uranus in our solar system. We have something that we call super-Earths, and we actually don't have a good idea what those are, whether they're just scaled-up rocks or scaled-down ice giants, or there are proposals that they're like water worlds, right, that they have a deep water ocean that covers their surface. We don't have anything like that in our solar system, so it's hard to know, but we think they could exist. And then finally, we see the little rocks. We've just gotten sensitive enough to start to see the little rocks, and those we're excited by because that could be home. I was astounded, by the way, just as a diversion, to hear the other day that there was a moon of Saturn, I think, that turns out to have an ocean underneath. And you heard of that? Yes, that's Mimas. So actually one of Mimas's claim to fame, if you've ever seen a picture of it, it's the one that looks like a death star. It's got the big divot taken out of the side. So when we think about looking for life in our solar system, one of the things we're thinking about is liquid water. Where is there liquid water in the solar system? We know in the past there was liquid water on Mars. We see evidence of water rushing over the surface and leaving things behind. But elsewhere in the solar system, the liquid water is in these subsurface oceans. So Enceladus is another moon of Saturn. Europa is a moon of Jupiter. And now Mimas is this second moon of Saturn that seem to have these subsurface oceans. And that's really exciting because we think that all life on Earth needs liquid water. There's not much else that all life on Earth needs. Life is really great about filling up all of the evolutionary and ecological niches, but we all need liquid water. So finding liquid water in a new moon of Saturn could be super, super cool. Now, I know that Saturn's quite large compared, say, to Mercury, but the moon, moons are smaller. How do you have an ocean? The further out in the solar system you are, the more the water content is, actually. If you think about the original distribution of water in the solar system, most of the water condensed way out in the outer solar system. Uranus and Neptune have water, just not liquid water like the water we're looking for. So these rocks are formed from the detritus of comets and asteroids in the early solar system. Everything's bombarding each other. And then the material settles, right? You get rock in the middle, and then the next heaviest thing is water, and then you expect something like an atmosphere on top. But if the top of the water freezes and then you get this shell of ice and rock, that's where you see the subsurface ocean. Amazing, yes. But back to these planets, how many are close and how many are not? So actually, this is kind of exciting. The very closest star to our solar system is called Proxima Centauri. It's part of a three-star system with Alpha Centauri A and Alpha Centauri B. In Australia, the Alpha Centauri is one of the pointers, like that's an obvious one, we know that one. That's our closest star system. Proxima Centauri has a rocky planet in the habitable zone of that star. So it's a rocky planet that's the right temperature for liquid water. That's our nearest neighbour. Like when we go out into the galaxy and ask for a cup of sugar, Proxima Centauri is right there. It's 3.8 light years away, which is to say it's quite far. (laughs) But that's because space is really big. (laughs) But if we go at the speed of light, we get there in three and a half years. Yes, and things like radio emissions from Earth or laser transmissions. Like if we want to send messages, it's going to take nearly four years, but that's the timescale we're looking at. So that's only an eight-year round trip for communicating. (laughs) Some of the other planets we found are much further away. Amazing, isn't it? So are you just going to continue from 66 to 2,500? And is it a case of accumulating more and more? And at some stage, you will see patterns in these planets that are more like Earth's and therefore you'll be able to home in on something? Yes. So there's this famous Ernest Rutherford quote, which is, all science is stamp collecting or physics. 
So we've been stamp collecting for a long time. And they gave him the prize in (laughs) chemistry to spite him. (laughs) So we've been stamp collecting for a long time in Exoplanet. So you're asking about whether we're just going to keep collecting more. I hope so. And I'm going to keep looking for more. But it's the physics. It's the underlying patterns and reasons why things are happening the way we are. Why are we finding rocky planets in the habitable zones of these stars? What does that tell us about how planets form and how they evolve and how they migrate? What does it tell us about the future of our solar system? What's going to happen to us in five billion years? One of the most exciting developments for me for the last few years is finding planets around white dwarfs. So our sun is just a boring middle-aged G star. In five billion years, you might have heard it's going to expand to a huge red giant, swallow up Mercury, swallow up Venus, maybe swallow the Earth. And there's this open question for a long time, do planetary systems survive this stage? Can you have planets after the red giant stage? So after the star becomes a red giant, it puffs off all its outer layers, hopefully becomes a beautiful planetary nebula, and then what's left behind in the middle is a white dwarf, just a little cooling chunk of carbon and oxygen. And we've started finding planets around nearby white dwarfs, which means they can survive, which means our solar system might survive. It's the first evidence that we might still be around after five billion years. You mentioned Ernest Rutherford. In the science show shortly, I'm broadcasting a program about Sir Mark Oliphant, who was the first person to be head of the Australian Academy of Science Mm -hmm. and was the right-hand man, literally, of Ernest Rutherford. Rutherford was a rather clumsy man. <laughs> There's a wonderful sign in his laboratory, we don't have the money, therefore we must think. <laughs> and he was able to think because Mark was doing the work for him. And I found a recording of him from 1931 talking about wow. gamma rays and alpha rays and so Incredible. on. That's very cool. I'm looking forward to hearing that. Do you think many people remember who he was? You're the first person I've met who knows someone who's known him. So I think, no, I don't think many people still remember. We remember the quotes and we remember the science, but not the person. So having the recording is super exciting. I'll tell you when it's on and you can listen. I will. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. The irrepressible Dr. Jesse Christensen, lead scientist at the NASA Exoplanet Archive, based at Caltech in Pasadena. From Australia, and yes, one of the science show's top 100 soon, She's queen after all.